Hi, I'm Steve Kerwood, and today on the Living on Earth podcast, we'll have a chat with writer and Invisibilia co-founder Lulu Miller about her book, Why Fish Don't Exist. But first, your support helps make it possible to bring you this podcast, so please contribute what you can. $5 or more makes a difference. You can donate right now at LOE.org, and thanks. Chaos is the only sure thing in this world, the master that rules us all writes science journalist Lulu Miller in her book, Why Fish Don't Exist, a story of loss, love, and the hidden order of life. Lulu is the co-founder of NPR's Invisibilia, and her book marvels at the obsessive efforts of a scientist named David Starr Jordan to defy chaos more than a century ago, as he discovered and named thousands of new fish species. In his efforts to bring order to the classification of organisms based on evolution, he also relentlessly sought to bring order to his own life, though disaster after disaster threatened to obliterate his life's work. Lulu Miller joins me now from Chicago. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a huge fan of the show for years, and it's a real treat to be with you. Lulu, let's start where you started on this book project. What about David Starr Jordan, this obscure ixtheologist, fish scientist who caught your eye, and why? Yeah, why? You know, I didn't even know his name at first. I just heard this one detail about somebody, the person in charge of a fish collection in San Francisco that was destroyed after the 1906 earthquake. Hundreds of fish fell, the jars were shattered, they were separated from their names. And I just heard this detail that after the earthquake, instead of just kind of giving up and being overwhelmed, this man innovated and he started this new way of attaching labels to the fish. He he sewed them on with a sewing needle as this kind of hope that chaos would never get him again. And it was this really tiny detail that for some reason just kind of made me chuckle and made me think, oh, he's such a good emblem for the human spirit, like our refusal to back down even when, when the world completely destroys our, our mission. And I just slowly began to wonder about him. I began to wonder, hey, did his trick work? Did chaos get him later? What, what becomes of someone so confident in the face of chaos itself? Of course, he was a collector of all those fish. Part of your book explores collecting as a passion. Yes. What is it about collecting as a passion? I just think there's something so human about it and so odd when you zoom out. Like, I think that was one of the things that drew me in. What is this desire to preserve and order, to fussily arrange everything? For him, it's natural objects, it's fish. And so he's trying to understand the shape of the great tree of life and how everything is connected evolutionarily to one another. But we all do this in certain ways. You know, as a documentarian, I'm walking around with a microphone all the time collecting moments and it's like a tick. I can't stop. And I think there's part of me that wonders where that desperation comes from in people. And so I think in certain ways, I it was a very different form collecting fish versus collecting moments and memories. But I think I really identified with him. And and I kind of wondered what becomes of you when you don't even let yourself get a handle on it. Like he just gave into it. And he was just so obsessive. Your own writing suggests that maybe collecting is a way to deal with chaos. Absolutely. Yes. I think it is one of the few ways you might not be able to stop the lightning or the earthquake or the virus. You know, you you might not be able to stop it, but if you can collect 
little bits of information, little bits of the world, if you can know them, if you can name them with more and more accuracy, you might have a better ability, I think, to protect yourself from the chaos or at least have the illusion of control. There's a psychologist, Werner Merstenberger, I write about, who studied obsessive collectors for decades. And he wrote that oftentimes people's collecting became sort of pathological and obsessive after some huge deprivation or tragedy. And that with each new acquisition, there was this temporary burst of, he called it, fantasized omnipotence. Mm. Like this little hit that you have control in a world where we know we don't. Who was this guy really, this fish scientist, David Starr Jordan? Yeah, so he was, he was an American. He was born in upstate New York, and he was born in 1851 and always loved nature. And as a little kid, he was kind of mocked for his love of nature. And the way he studied the world by literally crawling around in the dirt and looking at it was actually starting to fall out of fashion sort of temporarily in academia where people were putting more weight on books and recitation of beliefs. And so he couldn't get a job. His first job was a teaching job and his students grabbed the pointer out of his hand and set it on fire. Like he couldn't get a girl. I mean, he was just, he was, as a younger kid, he was beat up. I mean, he was just your classic nature loving, sweet nerd and the world would not cut him a break. So that sort of made me fall in love with him because he just stayed dedicated. You know, the first thing he wanted to do was name the stars. And then he believes they learned the name of every star. And then he moved on to flowers. And then finally he moved on to fish. And so he's in his early 20s when he meets a teacher who really changes his life. And that's Louis Agassi, the famous Swiss naturalist who told him, study nature, not books. And when he starts studying under the tutelage of Agassi, his life changes. He suddenly kind of gains this sense of purpose in what he's doing. He gets a great job at Indiana University. He becomes a president of Indiana University. Then he becomes the first president of Stanford. You know, he gets a wife and kids and he starts commissioning with the Stanford's money, all these expeditions all over the world to collect fish. And as the years go on, he and his team just start discovering hundreds of new species. And I think about like in a scientist's life, I think to discover one species is, is huge. And to discover over 2,000, at that point, it was like a fifth of fish known to man in his day. So he really helped uncover a massive amount of the tree of life. Like I think of this whole scaly lower branches, like a big section of it. So to what extent was this a nice guy? In certain ways, is full of charm. And from a, a young age, he says he dedicated his life to the, quote, hidden and insignificant. He believed that the best clues to nature's plan lied in the, the unknown, that the true scientist notices everything and the small. You see that in his life and you see this just profound curiosity. And he's really charming. His, one of the things that made him so great to study is he's really funny. Like he's a funny writer and he has these odd little goals. Like he wants to be able to clasp his hands and jump through them as a little boy, which you just picture. And he, he writes these hilarious satires about people who believe in the occult. And, you know, he's kind of mean, but he's really funny. And he does a lot of good. He, he was really passionate about co-education, about women getting equal education at Stanford. He was, he was a pacifist. He was opposed to World War I at a time that was really unpopular and spoke out against it. But? <laughs> but there was... Um, 
if you got in the way of his goals, he was an utter bulldozer. I mean, he got people fired. There is a lot of evidence that suggests he was involved in a murder. If not in the murder, he was definitely involved in a cover-up of a murder. And then the latter third of his life, he was a passionate eugenicist and just could not hear any of the opposition, you know, whether it was the Catholic Church or other scientists calling his ideas, quote, rot, or judges calling eugenics an engine of tyranny and oppression. I mean, there was opposition, and he just didn't hear it. Even victims of sterilization themselves saying, quote, I'm a human being just like you. He just dedicated himself further and further to the cause and in, in so doing harmed thousands of lives. So so he's got well and being a scientific descendant of Louis Agassiz, who yeah. you know, saw a biological basis for race and all that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that you point out, you know, of the thousands of species, you said like two thousand species that he and his team identified, uh, he named one after himself. Yes. Yes. And you actually went to the Smithsonian to see the specimen. Yes. Um, describe it for me, please. Oh, okay. It's a kind of poacher fish called the Agolomanus jordani. It looks like a dragon. It looks like a tiny dragon with big wings, sort of serrated wings. And it almost its body almost looks like a curling staircase, a spiral staircase. To me, it almost looks like an M.C. Escher drawing where like there are so many corners and curves, but nothing quite lines up. And there's just something a little unsettling about it. It also is really spiny. And so I went to see it. The one, it's called the holotype, which is the very first specimen of a species. So the first physical creature that was ever named, this kind of holy object. And they they took it, the scientist, she took it with metal tongs out of the jar and then she placed it in my hand and I got to hold it with my bare hand. And they're they're known for being these kind of violent hunters. They'll camouflage themselves with muck and then they'll use those wing-like things, that, which are fins obviously, to to just strike at incredible speed and get their prey, little crustaceans, before they know what hit them. And so he discovered so many beautiful rainbow-colored crimson things that glow. And I just, I wondered, huh, that was the one in the entire sea, the only one he chose to grace with his name. And I and I wondered why. I mean, did he see something of himself in that? Did he admire that? Why was that the one? That he loved a fish that one might call a monster. Yeah. As a boy, he was always drawing. One of my favorite parts of his archives is it is filled with drawings and doodles, like scientific drawings of flowers, beautiful with ink. And he's not great at it, but he's dedicated. They're, they're just, everything's filled in, every single petal, hundreds of them. And then in, in his later life, he just started drawing beasts, hundreds of them, these, these fantastical beasts that he was making up. He was definitely increasingly obsessed with monsters. I think that that is fair to say. Well, I'll leave it to the reader to consider the monster within that you yes. wonder about. Yeah. Um, of course, David Starr Jordan, as you write, faced personal disaster after personal disaster. I mean, what's the list? First, he loses his big brother yeah. in the Civil War to disease, the way most soldiers died in the Civil War, by the way. Yep. And then you talked about his collection getting smashed during the earthquake. And, and before that, the first collection he built was struck by lightning and burnt to the ground. Like, just another detail in his life that doesn't faze him. His first wife died 
very young after they had had three kids, then following her death, their baby died. His very first collection, you could argue, of maps was destroyed by the chaotic force of his own mom. She took all his maps. She thought that what he was doing was a waste of time. She was this Puritan and she chucked him. He recruited his one of his best friends from college to come help him on the quest of, he wanted to discover every freshwater fish of, of North America. And less than a year into their quest, his colleague fell overboard and froze to death while they were searching for fish. I mean, just all around him, two of his favorite students that he trained in the art of relentlessly pursuing the unknown died while collecting. It felt like his life was plagued by destruction in a fairly uncanny way. Now, one of the things you write is that David Starr Jordan had this unflappable optimism about ordering the world. Yes. Persisting, even as all these disasters happen. And he did some pretty horrible things along the way. You know, you raise the questions, oh, was he involved in a murder? Oh, was he spent a lot of time with eugenics. So I, I take it by the end of your book, you're pretty disgusted with David Starr Jordan. <laughs> And you are delighted when you come across a kind of cosmic justice for him. What happened? Yeah. So in a certain way, it looked like he went to the grave unpunished for his sins and his bad behavior. But then posthumously, there was this incredible discovery basically in the 1980s that fish, the group, the category of fish does not exist. It is not a valid grouping of creatures. So you could say it's a category you could make. So you could say, you know, if you wanted to make a group of all creatures that have stripes, fine, that's a group. You can call it the stripies. Similarly, fish, you could say all finny things that, you know, swim underwater, but aren't whales, aren't mammals. You know, you could say that's a group and you could call it fish. But if you want to actually look at how creatures are related evolutionarily, Fish is a totally bunk category. There are creatures such as the lungfish or the coelacanth, which are far more closely related to us, for example, than to their near twin. It looks like, you know, from the outside, a salmon or something. And by the way, for those who aren't so acquainted with the Linnaean way of classifying, <laughs> yes, you know, amphibians are a class, mammals are a class, some would say birds are a class, but fish are not. Correct. And to me, there's something so poignant about, you know, the universe first strikes with lightning and then with an earthquake and it keeps trying to steal its fish back. Or, you know, this is one way to read his tale. <laughs> and he keeps trying to overcome it. And then right at the end, the way the universe finally steals his fish is a, in a way is by his very own hand, by his own obsession, by his own desire to order creatures. If you were to follow that to its current end, you would see that fish was never was never an actual grouping at all. Lulu, so then how did you come to process this idea that fish don't exist? And, and what does that mean for your life? The best way I can explain it, what I've slowly come to understand is what these scientists are saying is that fish is a gerrymandered category. It's a term we use. It's a proxy that we use to parse the chaos. But it is a way that we keep our sense of superiority intact. And if you want to look more closely at nature, having an openness to the sense that most of our intuitive categories might actually be wrong can help you see the world more expansively. And so I think for me, this, this wacky concept that fish does not exist, it's become a mantra in my mind and a reminder to think about 
what other categories and hierarchies we may be believing in that we need to reexamine. Lulu Miller is a co-founder of NPR's Invisibilia and the author of Why Fish Don't Exist. Lulu, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much, Steve. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Merlin Hajiumeri, Candace Wing G, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learish Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.